Hello, and welcome to my podcast, where I discuss amongst myself any topic, event, or idea that interests me. This is part two of Economic Schools, my mini-series on the economic doctrines and modes that the West, as in Europe, has taken on throughout the history of our civilization. Today I'll be talking about the classical mode of economy, the Roman or Greek primarily agricultural-focused, at a low level, slave economies, and at a high level, oligarchies. I'll start with the Greek city-states, who emerged as a collection of cities on the Grecian peninsula centering around the Aegean Sea between Greeks and Turkey, who were a dispersed group of cities and peoples situated in non-agriculturally favorable mountainous regions of Greece. The ancient Greek cultures existed from around 800 to 200 BC. The poor agricultural land in Greece, namely the mountainous region and poor soil quality, led the Greeks to depend on the manufacture of goods and trade for the intake of food. On a large scale, the Greek economies relied on sea trade with Egypt and Mesopotamia. To make this trade equitable, the Greeks produced crafted goods like wine and pottery in exchange for food. Greek city-states established trading colonies across the Mediterranean where they could send and receive traded goods or food. On a smaller level, the Greek city-states' economies were propped up mostly by slaves. Most often, citizen families would own land or business whose workforce was mostly made up of slaves. The slaves would work fields, tend to livestock, or work households, while their owners would conduct the business or produce the actual artisanal products. It would not have been uncommon for an average Athenian family to own one or two slaves. The export of these goods was facilitated by merchants. For example, a common product of Greece was wine. That could be taken to a dock by the producer and sold for profit to a merchant, who would then take the wine and sell to Egypt or some other place and sell it for profit at a port likely owned by the Greek city-state. The merchant was an autonomous entity in and of himself. They might choose to operate under the contract of a wealthy landowner or independently. So often when they made the return journey to Greece, they might buy food and sell it for a profit back in Greece itself. If a wealthy person wanted to secure a trade route, they may choose to contract a merchant to ferry goods on a regular path. Now, the Greek society was mostly split up into three groups across all the different city-states. The slaves and the citizens, who would own land businesses but had little political power, and the oligarchs, sometimes kings or the council or senators and advisors. The people in charge of making these decisions, although in the case of Athens were democratically elected among the wealthier citizens, became exuberantly wealthy. With the influence to affect the economy and policies and trade came wealth and more influence. These people were the oligarchs, and oligarchs were afforded a life of luxury from ownership of large tracts of lands and the income they made from all their slaves. Oligarchs were the elite, small class of people who ruled many ancient Greek city-states. Although often there was a king, the oligarchy within that institution would often be their advisors, or minor nobles, or dignitaries. Now, after a period of brief unification under Alexander the Great, and then a period of stagnation thereafter, 
Greece was conquered by the Romans. The Roman economic way of life was similar to Greece, and they shared geographical attributes. The area of the Italian peninsula Rome sat in had poor agricultural potential, as Rome itself sits in a mountainous region with poor soil. The Roman history that I'm going to talk about begins with them as a republic in around 200 BC, although they do have their roots as a kingdom. So much like Athens, they were ruled by a senate. In other words, a gathering of individuals who made decisions by equal votes. These senators were elected, like in Athens, by a minority of slave and property owners from an elite pool of candidates. Society, like Greece, was divided into three classes, as I've mentioned, yet they took on different names. Patricians, the wealthy ones, plebeians, the citizenship or middle class, and slaves. With slaves having no legal representation, plebeians having some, and patricians being mostly the ones in charge. By numbers, slaves were likely the most populous of the Roman people, although not considered Roman by the Romans, because slaves were a product of Roman conquests and were not taken care of by the state. Then the second most populous group would be the plebeians, often small business owners, employees of patricians, and the middle class, although still relatively poor, population of Rome, to which the emperors and the senators had to respond to. And finally at the top, a very small elite ruling class of senators and leaders who were able to run for political office and pay for the means to run for political office, and would often be the ones who owned many, many slaves. While the class system in Rome began like this, it eventually developed into a four-class system somewhat, with the centurion class, or soldiers, being a class in between the patricians and plebeians, as they were landowners themselves, yet had to provide a service or were employed directly by the state initially. Like the Greeks, the Roman economy relied on slave labor for their agricultural production. The primary concern of the government then and for almost all of Rome's history was the feeding of their citizens. That was their first and foremost worry. Rome, however, differed from Athens, often considered the, the largest and most successful and emblematic Greek city-state in a big way. Rome created a culture of Mediterranean trade like Greece, with the addition of using an army of centurions to protect and acquire land and goods. Rome became successful, but eventually fell because of its dedication and dependence on its army. Rome was driven to expand due to the need to feed citizens and thus acquire land. To acquire land, Rome used an army of centurions who were paid in exchange for their service with land, a plot of newly conquered land somewhere that they would often conquer directly themselves to own slaves on and profit from effectively the 401k plan of ancient Rome. Because the currency of payment to Roman centurions was the acquisition of land, and the only way to sustain the Roman people and their conquered provinces was to acquire more land for food trade and slaves, the Roman economy had a constant need for expansion. This desire and the tactical ability to back it up enabled them to conquer and settle territories spanning the whole Mediterranean. While Rome was successful at subduing and annexing many of their conquered territory, the whole administrative capacity was in Rome. 
Even with the territorial extent that Rome reached, the capital was involved in almost all decision-making and would appoint leaders and make larger decisions for Rome. The capital was the regulator of the economy and the center of most supply chains within Rome. The expression, all roads lead to Rome, comes from the Romans' fanatic drive to build roads, which provided trade to the capital. This trade network and territorial expanse propped up the massive population of the city of Rome, once reaching over one million people. And keep in mind that Rome could not survive on its own on the land that it sat on. From around 200 BC to 40 BC, the senators in Rome increasingly became greedy, and their selfishness and tendency to bicker brought the whole institution of the Senate to a ruined state, threatening the existence of Rome. The situation was untenable, and after decades of chaos and a dictator, one Roman general led a re rebel army against the Roman Senate and was victorious in the ensuing civil war. This was Julius Caesar. Caesar reformed Rome into a more centralized emperor state. The emperor of Rome, who governed Rome thereafter, was an absolute leader with controls over Roman affairs internal and external. Power was now even more centralized. The currency of Rome was minted on the emperor's authority. Edicts, or prerogatives, were issued by him, and almost all high-level positions in government were appointed by the emperor himself. The emperor was in charge of facilitating the Roman economy, distributing bread and such, and acquiring new territories, going on grand conquests for the sustenance of Rome, etc. This mandate for the emperor held Rome afloat for centuries, with the allocation of resources being efficiently procured, handled, and distributed by the state and its all-powerful emperor. Rome, however, became too large for what it was built upon. Rome reached its greatest territorial extent around the time of Emperor Trajan or Hadrian. After this point, in around 100 AD, the Roman government was no longer able to adequately fulfill a fundamental function of their existence, the acquisition of territory to pay centurions. Rome had reached an equilibrium point in their territorial extent. They could only support an army to guard their borders, and to hold on to the land they had, if not less, and not expand. The Roman military became a primarily defensive institution, and thus became incapable of acquiring new slaves for the Roman economy and violating its original purpose. This was by no means a deliberate choice on the behalf of the Roman Emperor's Senate. This came about naturally and as a product of Roman overexpansion into new territories. After this, Rome entered a two-century period of stagnation, slowly losing territories in the outer reaches of their empire and further and further relying on local mercenaries to protect their interests. The Roman bureaucracy, though it was able to subjugate a vast amount of territories and feed its massive population and sustain their way of life, did little to truly unify its constituent people in the reaches of the empire. For example, the Romans brought many amenities and technologies with them to Judea, but they only ended up being used in the barest minimum ways as a way of pacifying the general populace, and were mostly spent on maintaining the Roman population who lived there. The quote-unquote Roman way of life and the idea of being a Roman was never accepted by Egyptians, Jewish people, Greeks, Arabs, Gallic people, Iberians, and all others conquered by the Romans. The main reason for this being that offer was not extended to them. 
This disunity meant that both Rome could not raise effective armies from those newly conquered territories, and that the loyalties of those people sat not with Rome. So, 400 years after the foundation of the Roman Empire, it collapsed to the entropy of its disparate constituents, being at odds with the ever less efficient and less capable Roman state. Thank you so much for listening, that's all I have for today. I will be back sometime soon to discuss mercantilism and possibly contrast the economic doctrines of Smith and Marx. Goodbye.